Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Last week, I had a privilege of interviewing a retired Chief Master Sergeant Robert Disney, a Purple Heart recipient, an accomplished pararescue man, who performed hundreds of civil and combat missions and has rescued or recovered over 300 personnel. He's a public speaker on resilient leadership, wounded warrior advocate, actor, musician, and strategic consultant. Welcome to the Blue Grid podcast from Denver. Chief Disney, I have heard your interview on the Hazard Ground podcast and your story captivated me. I sat in my car in a parking lot until I finished listening to the end. What a unique story of grit you have and what a pleasure it is to interview you today. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your career in the Air Force. You're a former PJ, well, I guess you can say former PJ, once a PJ, always a PJ. <laughs> I think once a PJ, always a PJ fits. I came in in 1996, came straight out of a couple of what I would call failed attempts at college, enlisted for the delayed enlistment program, and came in knowing that I wanted to try out for pararescue. When I first walked into a recruiter's office, I asked him what they had in the Air Force that was similar to either the SEALs or the Special Forces, something of a, a special warfare component to the Air Force. And he said, we have this job called pararescue, but you probably wouldn't make it, and I don't know anything about it. He pointed to a stack of dusty pamphlets over in the corner, and I picked one up, and on the cover it had a, a guy wearing camouflage and, and a maroon beret on his head, and I read through the pamphlet, and it talked about medical and rescue and technical rescue and special operations missions and working with sister services, and just sounded, sounded like exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, so I came in. Came in August of 1996, did six weeks of basic training, then went to the pararescue indoctrination course. I went through six weeks of one course and then immediately started in the next course after I got washed back for failing an event. What was that like? It's a very trying, it's very personally demoralizing in some ways, but also extremely motivating. It was one of the few real failures, feelings of failure that I had ever had up to that point in my life. Mm -hmm. So I started in a class of 86 people and graduated six, 10 weeks later, mm -hmm. um, went, on to, uh, went on to combat dive school, went on to airborne, free fall, survival, water survival, underwater egress, and then the pararescue school at Kirtland Air Force Base where we did ground operations, medical operations, air operations, and learned to put all of the skills a pararescue man would use together in mission environments. Then I graduated from that in March of 1998. My first 
duty station was Moody Air Force Base, Georgia. The nutshell version of my career is Valdosta, Georgia at Moody Air Force Base from 1998 to 2004. Then I PCS'd to RAF Mildenhall until 2007. I was in a special tactics unit there. 2007, I made Master Sergeant and ended up going back to Moody Air Force Base as a flight sergeant, flight superintendent. And after that, I went and did a three-year stint at Air Combat Command Staff in the Standards and Evaluations Office and made chief out of there and went to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona, and was a squadron chief of the 48th Rescue Squadron for about three years. Until, until I, you retired. Until I retired. Yeah. 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 What so, a career. It, it was awesome. And that was peppered with tons of deployments, right? Thirteen. I deployed four times to Operations Southern Watch and Northern Watch in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was in Turkey over 9-11, doing helicopter rescue there at the time. Then I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 2002, went back in late 2002, and then stayed for a double deployment on that deployment, and that was the most fateful of my deployments, and I cut that third deployment to Afghanistan short in late April of 2003. Mm -hmm. Then I did multiple deployments with special tactics units, and I was in Iraq three times, Turkey, Kuwait, you name it, a little bit of everywhere, Eastern Europe. So I had a relatively uneventful career until I deployed to Afghanistan for the first time. It was in July of 2002. I went to Kandahar and worked with helicopters out of Kandahar for that deployment. I hadn't been there for but three or four weeks, and I was in my first helicopter crash. It was August 12th, 2002. I believe it was probably my second operational rescue mission. Two ship of helicopters flew out of Kandahar out to eastern Afghanistan at night. We'd already had a long day, so we flew out to a firefight in eastern Afghanistan where a couple of guys had been shot, and we picked them up and took them up to a high-altitude location in the mountains of Afghanistan called Orgoon. We landed at the Orgoon, dropped off the patient, did all the patient turnover and stuff, and the coolest thing about that place was at the time the medical facility was in a goat barn. It was, no kidding, a full surgical facility. So they did some initial stabilization stuff on those patients, and then we decided to head home. So I was in Afghanistan flying as a member of a two-man team on a HH-60, and we had another two members flying on the other helicopter on our, on our other bird. And we had just dropped off those patients, and our command from home station at Kandahar told us that we needed to come home. And our pilots argued the point that we'd had a long crew day. We were at high altitude. Everybody was tired. We were beat. And they said, well, just go ahead and come on home. So we took on a full load of fuel and began to head home. As the lead bird took off out of the high altitude LZ, they took off real low altitude rolling takeoff to get out of ground effect because we were at high altitude. We were heavy. It was hot. And they got out of ground effect and took off. And then it was our turn. And I remember the feeling of the helicopter not, not having a lot of lift capacity. Never got more than 5 or 10 feet off the ground. And as we crossed the threshold of the end of the forward area, the rearming and refueling point, as we hit the edge of that, the dust in Afghanistan was like a foot deep of like talcum powder. 
we cross the edge of it and now we're at low altitude. We're not moving forward very fast and this dust is coming up in the cockpit and it was so thick that it choked you to breathe. It was like being underwater and you couldn't see through it. I turned and looked at my teammate across from me in the helicopter. Each of us was in an opposite sliding door and I could barely make out his face. All I could make out was a, a green the light of his NVGs around his eyes. That's how dark it was. That's all I could see at that point. And I sensed, and listening to the radio and everything going on and listening to the air crew talking, um, I realized that we weren't getting out of ground effect and the pilot was going to have to try and set it down. And for some reason, I started to get, uh, started to get this hot feeling, this adrenaline feeling that something was about to happen. As the pilot tried to set the aircraft down in this brownout, she lost visual references and ended up in a backward left sliding attitude just a little bit above the ground. And it ended up being so fast in that backwards attitude that we cleared our own dust cloud. And then I could see the ground outside just screaming past us um, from the back left. And just sensing imminent danger, I moved out of the door. I had been sitting in the door kind of with my legs hanging out. So sensing danger, I moved inside the helicopter and got myself away from the door. And just as I did that, there was a big impact inside the helicopter. And what we had done was the helicopter had slid backwards into the, the berm, the dirt mound that surrounded the base. And that dirt mound had barbed wire around the top of it. So as we hit that and impacted it, mm-hmm. it slammed my door shut which would have taken my legs off or killed me or captured me under the helicopter. And then the tail rotor caught in the barbed wire going around the base. And the helicopter, because that had happened and now we were rolling and we had a pivot point and the helicopter rolled over. And I remember as it started to go, the floor of the helicopter tilting into a 90 degree position and me sliding and falling onto my door and just laying there on the floor and it's completely dark and it's completely choked with dust and I'm just laying there and now all the blades on the helicopter have snapped off and it's laying pretty much on its top with the bladeless rotor head sitting there chewing itself into the ground and the helicopter's rocking back and forth and it's extremely violent. If you ever seen a video of an H-60 crash or of any crash for that matter when the helicopter's upside down and the blades haven't been turned off yet, it's just chewing its way into the ground and rocking back and forth at such a fast pace. And without the, without the blades, the rotor is just laying there, just spinning up faster and faster, and the engines are getting louder and louder. And now I'm laying with my helmet on still, and my night vision goggles have been knocked off my face. And I'm laying with all the other equipment laying on top of me, and my head is against the top of the helicopter. And it's so loud and so screaming and so violent. And all I'm thinking to myself is, we're getting ready to blow up. This is it. Do you remember how you felt in that time? Oh, yeah, I thought I was going to die. Very, uh, but very, I, I mean, there wasn't anything I could do at the time. I couldn't move, but not panicky. Mm-hmm. Very, at, at a certain point, kind of calm. Like, okay, let's just, whatever's going to happen, let's get it over with. The pilots got to the controls, shut it down. So that loud, screaming loud engines quieted and quieted until it was completely silent. And we just laid there for a second and everybody's just sitting there. Nobody's moving. Nobody's talking. And then finally, one of my buddies yells, is everyone okay? 
And nobody responded at that point. But then when he said, sound off by crew position, it kind of put everybody back into the professional mindset and into the aircrew mindset and mission mindset. And they began sounding off. Co-pilot okay, pilot okay, gunner okay, FE okay, PJ-1 okay, PJ-2 okay. And by that point, we knew that we had an okay crew. So the next thing that somebody yelled was, get out! (laughs) So... With the floor at this crazy angle and the helicopter upside down, it was very disorienting on how to get out of the helicopter. And I was actually tangled up in my own Concorde and wasn't able to get out and had to have the flight engineer help take all my wires off of me and everything so that I could get out. My teammate climbed up to the top of the helicopter, which now obviously was the bottom, and worked his way over to the pilot's door, opened the door, and checked on them, made sure they were okay. About that time, as we were getting the, as we're working on getting the pilot out, uh, who was still strapped upside down in her seat, the special forces guys who were at that base, they had heard an explosion. They had heard the sound of a deafening crash mm-hmm. and had responded in their vehicles, certain they were going to show up to a bunch of bodies. And they were surprised to find us all, all okay, all alive, everybody working on getting the pilots out of the helicopter. That was August 12, 2002. I spent a few days with a sore back some bumps and bruises, but otherwise mostly okay. And that ended up being my first critical incident stress debriefing in Afghanistan. We ended that deployment about a month and a half later, about two months later. I believe it was early October. I actually re-enlisted, I think, nine days after my crash for another, another four years at the time. So about two months after that crash, I redeployed back to Georgia. I was there only about six weeks or so, And one of the guys who was going overseas, who was getting ready to deploy, he had a family issue and wasn't able to deploy. And because I had already been there and was single and motivated, I said, hey, I'll go back. So I deployed then to Pakistan. We had a base in Shabazz Air Base, Pakistan, in Jacobabad. And we were flying on C-130s out of there, C-130 Hercules, doing as members of a jump team. That was what we felt was our primary mission. What we ended up doing most was moving patients around theater. We would fly in somewhere when they couldn't get somebody out and move them somewhere and obviously provide medical treatment on the way there. So I was there until January, and we ended up having two fellas have to go home. So I moved up to Karshikanabad, Uzbekistan, And I worked with the helicopters out of there for, I guess, about six weeks. And then the same guy that had the family problem back in November of that year, of 2002, he was unable to deploy again in March of 2003. So I volunteered to stay in place for a now third deployment in Afghanistan. And that would end up being a really fateful trip. March 23rd of 2003, my C-130 team flew from Jacobabad, Pakistan, up to Karshikanabad, Uzbekistan, what we called K2. We flew up to K2, I think, just to move some equipment or supplies up there for the rest of our rescue brothers, and got off the plane, went straight to the dining facility to get something to eat. And while we were standing in line, our flight engineer came running in and said, hey guys, we've got a mission. So no kidding, as I'm standing there with a tray in my hand waiting to get a hot meal, uh, we had to put all our stuff down and, and run back to the plane. The mission was two Afghani children, a brother and a sister, as far as we knew. It was a boy and a girl, and I believe it was an 8- and a 10-year-old, and had somehow got injured, fallen down a hill or something. I think we started calling them Jack and Jill. And 
there was an ongoing discussion about which helicopters would end up picking up those patients, whether it would be the helicopters out of Kandahar or whether it would be the helicopters out of K2. But ultimately, it was the squadron commander who was on alert that night in Kandahar, and he made the decision that his team was going to fly the mission, his helicopters out of Kandahar. So we took off out of K2 on a C-130, and I remember it being dark, so dark that night. And there's not a lot of cultural illumination in Afghanistan anyway, but tonight it was under a deck of clouds, heavy thunderstorms in the area, and it was just so dark, so dark underneath it. And my night vision goggles were sparkling green, uh, scintillating, uh, because they're trying to capture as much light as possible. But I remember not even being able to see the ground. It was so dark, even with my NVGs on. And I remember flying over the site where the kids were because we got there first because we were faster and not seeing anything on the ground. No campfires, no buildings, no nothing, just so dark. But the helicopters were the primary rescue, primary pickup aircraft. So we went into a holding pattern over the top in order to support the helicopters with refueling capabilities. And they did call us and say, hey, we're going to need to refuel before we go in to do this pickup. So at the time, we had a technique, a TTP, as we call it, to do low-altitude aerial refueling. So they requested that, we agreed, and we were going to refuel at 400 feet above ground level, which is precarious for the helicopters, precarious for the C-130, but it was what we were going with at the time. As we went in to refuel them, I remember it being a big, huge valley. I could just make out mountains on either side of us. So the helicopters requested simultaneous refueling. So on the C-130, on each wing, on the rescue C-130s, on each wing, they have a refueling hose. The refueling hose comes out the back of the wings of the C-130, and it's got a huge, big, round, flowery-looking basket. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a hummingbird plugging into a flower. Mm -hmm. The helicopters have a probe on the front end of them, and they fly up and, and plug into these baskets and take on fuel from the C-130. Fantastic capability that provides us the ability to cover great distances and be on rescue missions for a very long period of time, whereas a helicopter has a certain amount of fuel, a limited amount, um, it extends their range and time on target. Mm -hmm. So the both loadmasters threw open their doors in the back, the paratroop doors, and stood in the doors, and the helicopters came up for simultaneous refueling. The one on the right plugged right in and started refueling. Mm -hmm. The one on the left-hand side kept having problems. It would strike for the hose and then miss it and back off and try it again and try it again. And they did this several times. I'm not even sure if they ever actually took on any fuel. The helicopter on the left-hand side disconnected. I heard the loadmaster call inadvertent disconnect to let the air crew know that they had come off the hose. And that helicopter backed off and moved out to the left to a position called observation or OBS. And it was just far enough to the side and we were just in enough of a bank and the ground was just rolling enough that the, the helicopter on the left-hand side ended up impacting, impacting a small hill. Mm -hmm. I did so at full speed, mm -hmm. no attempt to pull up, no evasive maneuvers. I'm sure that the pilot was keeping an eye on the wing of the C-130, mm -hmm. following it around and may never have seen what was coming. Mm -hmm. There's an orange flash out the side of the C-130 and it just lit up the entire countryside. And it blinded me out in my NVGs at the time and I remember looking underneath it and seeing the orange flash and then that bright flash faded. And at the same time as that happens, I hear over the radio screaming, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, they've crashed. 
But before he said they've crashed with this bright flash outside and the, oh my gods, my belief, my disorientation, I believed that one of the birds had just been taken out by a SAM, by a surface air missile. And I just sat there waiting for our turn, mm -hmm. you know, waiting to get blown out of the sky because mm -hmm. I still had no idea what was going on. But then I heard crash seven o'clock and understood that the helicopter on our left had crashed. It seemed like an eternity before I heard anybody talk or any radio chatter. At least that's my recollection. I've spoken with people since and the time dilation and focus was such that I didn't realize that everybody was talking. Everybody was chattering. Do we, do we, go, do we go support with a jump? Do, does the other helicopter spin in? Uh, what, do, what do we do? What's our mission now? And so obviously the mission was to self-search and rescue, perform self-SAR, as we call it. So we went into a circular pattern over the crash, and I could see it out the side of the aircraft, just a complete black sea of, of uh, terrain outside. You could see a kind of an orange line of fire and just bright light where they had clearly crashed and bounced and thrown fuel everywhere. And the other helicopter circled and spun down and landed just on the other side of a small rise. And the PJs, two PJs and their gunner, hopped out of the helicopter and ran over the hill to start effecting rescue and to search for survivors. I remember being overhead, circling, and hearing the PJ on the ground, the team leader, one of my best friends, and hearing him be so calm, so incredibly calm. And all of his radio communication was just clear and concise and calm as could be. The first call he made was, we found two of them and we're not gonna stop looking until we find all of them. Then a little bit later, we hear, we hear him say, hey, we found three now, but be advised there's vehicle lights coming up the hill from about a half mile to a mile away. Well, where we were in Afghanistan on the ground was not a safe area. It was a place we'd done a lot of combat operations recently. And my buddy, when he passed us that information, we handed that information back up to the Joint Search and Rescue Center out of Al Udeed. And they immediately came back with, that is not a friendly area. If there are people coming up, they are enemy, get out of there. Egress immediately. So the PJs on the ground started running back to the helicopter and when we told them recall you know that they've been recalled to the helicopters i remember hearing a bunch of huffing and puffing on the radio as my friend said uh you know hey we're, we're on our way back one of the hardest decisions i think that still haunts me today is the knowledge that that we had to leave them out there part of the part of the airman's creed is never leave a fallen airman behind I mean, it's, the, you know, it's in the Ranger Creed, it's, it's in every creed that's out there, it's the warrior code, is not to leave a fallen comrade behind. But given the situation, we had to pick up and, pick up and leave. Who made the decision? I would say it was higher headquarters with the concurrence of our aircraft commanders. Mm -hmm. Very hard decision to make. Part of that decision-making process was the fact that the the helicopter that had survived, Komodo 1-2, because Komodo 1-1 was the one that crashed, 
Komodo 1-2 needed to refuel anyway. They hadn't finished refueling, so they would need to refuel just to get back to Bagram. And at the same time, we received word that the Quick Reaction Force, the Army QRF out of Bagram, was spinning up to go out to the site to effect recovery. There was also a lot of other extenuating factors of why we had to leave, or what made it tactically or, or situationally uh, okay, I guess, to leave. We had a couple of Harriers overhead in no time. They were dropping flares on the site just as a deterrent to let whoever this was in the vehicle know there is, there's somebody overhead that's, mm-hmm. you know, you're not alone out here. Mm-hmm. The vehicle, I guess, ended up turning off their lights at some point, but just sat there. We stayed overhead for quite a while while the H-60 started to head back to Bagram. And they called us and said, hey, we're going to need to refuel just to make it to Bagram. So just after crashing, after having an aircraft crash, losing their wingman, losing friends, losing comrades, they had the presence of mind and wherewithal to request aerial refueling and knocked it out of the park, excelled at it. So we refueled them, and uh, I believe we ended up flying back to Pakistan that night, and en route, the other aircraft had launched. Our backup aircraft with the other PJ team had launched out of Pakistan to go up there and continue to support overhead all night. Mm -hmm. The PJs that were on that aircraft, on the non-mishap bird, the two PJs on it were Matt and Josh. Matt was roommates with Mike Maltz the Master Sergeant PJ on the helicopter. He was his roommate. The other PJ, Josh, was best friends with Jason Plight, who had died in that helicopter crash. So these are men out there not hunting for somebody they don't know anymore out to rescue an eight and a 10 year old boy and girl. Mm-hmm. They're, picking up, they're picking up their teammates, best friends, and roommates. Mike Maltz was like a father to me. Father, mentor, teammate, friend. Knowing that I left him out there on the ground has never set well with me, but it's one of those uh, one of those life lessons that I have to live with. So when we landed in Pakistan, when we landed in Pakistan, one of the first people to come up and talk to us was Lieutenant Casey. And Lieutenant Casey just asked us, Point blank, did you guys hear a female on the radio? His fiance was First Lieutenant Tammy Archuleta. She was the pilot of Komodo 11 who had crashed and died. So his fiance was on that bird, and nobody had the heart to tell him that, oh yeah, we had indeed heard, heard her on the radio that night. It was far reaching, touched a lot of people, but it was tough. But we did what we did and went right back to mission, right back to work. Four weeks after that, was the event that would end that deployment for me. It was the week prior to Easter. And a few weeks before Easter that year, I was in the gym working out and ended up running into somebody and asked them what they did. They said, I'm a helicopter pilot. And I'd seen a particular type of helicopter flying around Jacobabad, Pakistan, but was unaware that we had any Americans that were there flying it. So I said, man, that'd be really cool to come out and see your aircraft. We talked a little bit and he said, yeah, sure. And we ended up planning it. So my team went out, checked out their pretty cool aircraft, their helicopters, and a decision was made that they had a mission coming up and they wanted to bring some tactical operators with them. So that base only had a lot of military police and a couple of PJs. 
they decided not to take MPs on this one, and our team commander agreed to assign his off-duty team of PJs to this mission. The mission was going to be simple. We were just going to fly up about 90 miles, 90 miles north of Jacobabad, Pakistan, kind of in the middle of no man's land, you know, along the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and take a look at a site and do some stuff on the ground. So on Good Friday, April 18th, 2003, I would say probably around noon, our helicopter took off with myself, PJ Ross, and PJ Craig out of Jacobabad, Pakistan. I remember being so hot already. It wasn't 120s, but it was, it was so hot and so dry, and the way the air blew in through the helicopter felt like a, like a blow dryer, like a blow dryer on your skin. And the terrain underneath us as we did mission prep on the way there and, and scanning outside, the terrain changed from green and brown alternating fields to very desolate, very desert. And then there's a canal before you get to the mountains, and everything after that is like, it's like, it's like just hell on earth. It's hot, it's dry, there's no plants, there's no vegetation, there's no life out there. And the mountains are rugged and they're with peaks and crests and troughs and valleys. And I remember being on the helicopter and getting everything ready and getting our GPSs all set up, making sure our weapons are ready to go. And as the helicopter approached the landing zone, the pilots let us know, hey, it's out at two o'clock, kind of forward right. And I was sitting on the right side of the helicopter. So I was able to look outside and see, see the LZ, see the landing zone. And it was kind of a low plateau with ravines on either side of it. But it was nice and flat. But right in the center of it were what looked like three to four people. Three to four people standing in a close group, like a group of any bus might just stand and talk. And I passed that information up. You know, I said, there's people out there, there's people out there. And part of our mission parameters had been if there was anybody on the ground that we wouldn't go in. Mm-hmm. We weren't on any kind of radio any kind of communication with the pilots. And whether the message got lost in translation, I'll never know. You mean you were in the back of the aircraft and you didn't have comms with the pilot? Correct. So we tried to pass that information up front. Apparently it never got there. And as I looked back outside, and now the site is at our 4 o'clock, back to our right, because we're passing it, it was empty. There weren't people there anymore. So the aircraft turned into a bank, a right-hand bank, a right-hand turn, and made a really nice long run-in. And I remember seeing the ground coming up towards us as we approached the plateau. The helicopter had a, such a bank, such a bank angle as it came in, pitched up, nose up, tail down towards the ground. And the back of the helicopter was open, and so we were seated on either side of the cabin. And I was at the far back far back right side, so I'm looking straight out my left, and there's the ground right there. And I remember hearing, pop, real loud. My first instinct was that it was a flare, that we had maybe punched flares off of our helicopters. It sometimes happens for various reasons when you're flying in a helicopter on the H-60s or H-53s, so that's kind of what it sounded like to me. But then I heard it again, and this time it wasn't a pop as much as it was a snap, and a tiny hole, tiny little, little, little bright hole, you know, with sunlight coming in through it, kind of popped up on the left side of the helicopter straight across from me, right next to my buddy Ross. I realized we were under fire. We were being ambushed as we landed. I raised my 
rifle. As I looked forward in the helicopter, the other five or six people that were in the back end of it were looking back at me. I raised my rifle, raised it to my cheek, racked it, you know, charged it to chamber around, and everybody else started going for their weapons. They understood what was going on. And as we, as we started to land and the fire became automatic from small arms chewing in through the side of the aircraft, punching small holes with little dusty little laser beams of light coming through the helicopter. As I expected to get out of the helicopter, all of a sudden I felt a feeling that is so difficult to describe, but I'll try here. I felt at the same time like I had been hit in the face with a baseball bat, full swing. I remember my head just kind of shaking and rocking as I was disoriented. And at the same time, the shockwave of a bullet hitting me in the face, traveling out the back of my neck, as it created a local effect, it also created a systemic effect, a shockwave that rocked through my whole body. It felt like an explosion outside. So I was confused and disoriented, also thinking that we had taken on an RPG. Because of the systemic effect in my body, I believed that that shockwave was an RPG hitting nearby and that we were about ready to be blown out of the sky. As I got hit in the face, I remember looking up at my buddy, Ross, across from me and yelling, I'm hit! Did you know that you were hit in the face? Oh, yeah. You're right. Oh, okay. Yeah. When you you felt the shock. Absolutely. I yelled, I'm hit. And expecting to land... I maintained a position in the back of the helicopter. I raised my rifle to the side of my face, shouldered it, and tried to maintain security at the back of the aircraft, ready if we landed, to try to take the fight to the enemy. But that fight would never come. I sat there bleeding out the side of my face all over the butt of my weapon for 30 to 45 seconds as we pulled out of the LZ. And then I lowered my weapon and it had blood and guts and gore all over it from my face. And my helmet and sunglasses had been shot off of my head mm-hmm. by how hard that mm-hmm. bullet hit my face. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind at the time? The bullet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Terrible joke, but it's one that can only be told by somebody who's been shot in the face, I guess. So the helicopter left the area with me sitting in the back seat, in the back, almost hanging out of the helicopter and shouldering my rifle to the side of my face with no helmet and glasses now because they'd been knocked off my face by the impact of the bullet. And I remember I brought my hand up to my face and feeling, it just didn't feel right. (laughs) Um, The right side of my face, my cheek was hanging down underneath my chin. It felt to me like I had a gunshot wound in my neck instead of in my face, because when I put my hand up there, my skin was all hanging hanging down under my chin. Mm -hmm. So I put direct pressure on it. At the same time, I safed my rifle, took it off, set it aside, took off my body armor, set it aside, and then laid back, kicked my feet up, and, it's a very natural thing, I think, to lay down and, and treat myself for shock. You know, it's just what your body wants to do when you go through something like that. And then all of a sudden, now that I've laid down and kind of taken care of myself a little bit, now I look forward in the helicopter and I'm aware of the scene going on in there. 
PJ Craig sitting on the seat was right next to me. And now, of course, I'm on the floor and he's laid down on the seat and his feet are kind of towards me and they're kicking like crazy. He's in such incredible agony and in pain. He's laying on his back and there's blood everywhere. It's all over the floor and all over the seat and all over him and all over PJ Ross. Ross wasn't shot and Ross starts treating Craig and Craig has a through and through of his wrist. So a uh, bullet had smashed through his wrist causing a lot of bleeding and it was very distracting, what we call a distracting injury. So Ross is treating that while Craig is yelling at him, no, it's higher, it's higher. I'm shot higher. Craig had also taken a second round in his armpit and mm. severed his brachial nerve or caused extreme damage to it. Brachial artery was severed and it was up in his armpit, which is incredibly hard to treat with a tourniquet or with anything else. And back then we didn't have the amazing cat tourniquets that we had now. What we had was the old green non-pneumatic tourniquets that's got a little latch on it, like a belt buckle, and you put it on, and then you have to put something through it. So Ross had taken a carabiner and hooked a carabiner through it once it was tightened and then twisted the carabiner to try to create a tourniquet in Craig's armpit to stop it. And of course, it's incredibly painful, but it did slow it down a little bit, enough for Ross to be able to stop and move and treat the one other person on the helicopter that had been shot. And then he had taken a round in his right bicep and also through his flak vest uh, on the side, but it didn't go inside, it didn't penetrate, it was a glancing blow at a very narrow angle, so mm. it split him open mm. um, really bad and gave him difficulty breathing, so now Ross has this amazing medical scenario where he's got one guy who's having trouble breathing, another guy that's got a arterial bleeder in his armpit, and then there's this crazy guy at the back who got darn near got brained by a bullet in his head with his face hanging off, and uh, holding pressure on it by himself. Uh, about that point, Ross came back to me, told me you're gonna be okay, threw a huge bandage on it, and another person on board came over to me and asked me if he could do anything for me. I told him I needed some water. So he offered me water out of his camelback. I sat there and sipped on his camelback to wet my completely dry mouth from all the heat and all the adrenaline and everything that was going on. In the meantime, Ross was still working on the other two. He came over to me and stuffed a couple huge rolls of gauze into my face. He ended up packing my face really well. We ended up landing after about a half hour of flight back at Jacobabad Air Base. They had sound an alarm there that there was an emergency coming in, but people thought it was an exercise. So they were walking slowly out to the helicopter when it landed, taking their time, just thinking it was another exercise. So Ross saw that going on, jumped off the back of the helicopter and starts jumping up and down and waving his hands, come on, come on. And they saw him covered in blood and started running. They picked up their pace a little bit. When the firefighters, who were the responders, came up to the back of the helicopter, I needed help undoing my carabiner, the little length of rope between me and the floor of the helicopter. And I needed help undoing it because I was so disoriented, so shocky by that point. But I wanted to walk off the helicopter. I didn't want one of the litters one of the stretchers. So a firefighter got under each one of my arms and started walking me over towards a waiting Humvee where our doc was waiting. And I passed the base commander on the way there, and I believe now General John Shastin. And as I passed him, I took my arm off from around my buddy, shot him a salute, said, howdy, Colonel. <laughs> and he just sat there and stared at me as I walked by, probably not even believing what he was seeing. Yeah, so I ended up getting evac'd evacuated from Jacobabad, Pakistan, to Al-Udeed, Qatar. Did everybody on that flight made it, all the PJs? Yes. It ended Craig's career because of the devastating damage to his hand and wrist. 
the other individual shot in the side and flak vest and bicep. He returned to flying status almost immediately to flying duty. And then I ended up getting evacuated to uh, Al-Udid, Qatar, where I spent three days and got my first surgery there. I moved from there to Launchstool, was at Launchstool for five days, Walter Reed for five days, and then one of my own C-130s from Moody Air Force Base flew up to Andrews and picked me up and flew me home. And here's something wild. So I was 25, E5, and lived by myself. I drove myself home, or somebody else drove me home. And then over the next two months, I had to drive myself to base almost every day to get the wounds repacked on the back of my neck. We did things a lot differently back then. I traveled from Al-Udid to Launchstool to Walter Reed, mostly alone. I had a pair of black running shorts and a brown t-shirt and my ID card. That was all I came home with. We fixed some of that now. Nowadays, if somebody gets injured or wounded, a buddy accompanies them the whole way. If we can't get a buddy to come home with him because of the mission, we'll send one forward to go accompany him home. The advances of the Wounded Warrior Program have been absolutely amazing of what they've done and how they've changed that environment. So I came home, I had facial paralysis on the right side, you know, and obviously muscle weakness for about four months and then ended up getting back on full operational status. What was it like to go through recovery? From months you're 25, you have part of your face shut off. You know what, that's something that I'm glad you asked. I went from being just any other team guy, any other operator, any other airman. All of a sudden now I, I got this gunshot wound in my face and not because I did anything heroic or did anything amazing. I was in the right place at the wrong time and basically got ambushed and shot. But all of a sudden, everybody wants to do interviews. Now you're the poster boy. You're doing interviews and you're going to special events and you're, you're being requested. Your presence is being requested. And I call it the zero to hero factor. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever tells you how to handle that psychologically. Nobody ever tells you how to conduct yourself in an interview, mm-hmm. how to handle all of that uh, attention or, or requests. That's something I think that we still have a long way to go. I think that we still need, even a, even if it's a pamphlet or something that says, hey, congratulations, you know, get yourself ready for this because it's gonna be, it's gonna be a heck of a roller coaster. And I had a really, really hard time with it, overcoming that shift in self, I don't wanna say self-worth, more self-image because I still saw myself as just regular person with regular faults and that I hadn't done anything special, but I was being treated very differently. I eventually learned to accept the role and do my best to be the best spokesman and representative and airman that I can. It was a decision that would really frame my career, what my career was to become between doing Wounded Warrior events and being a, a volunteer or being a participant, either way, put me in a good position to be able to bring the message of the Wounded Warrior and be able to help shape how the Air Force would handle people in the same position. And you know, after, 
a helicopter crash, and then witnessing a fatal helicopter crash, and then getting shot in the face, and getting back up on full status just four months after that, and all of this within a period of a year. I thought I was, I thought I was pretty resilient. You know, you figure, oh, that's probably about it. No, I'm good. That wasn't the case. Just three weeks after I got back on fully operational status, I broke my right arm on my first parachuting jump back. First jump in front of a ton of my teammates and my bosses. I broke my arm. And as I laid in a hospital bed in the Tallahassee Regional Hospital, I thought to myself, my God, what have I done? Meaning? Everything I had just overcome seemed like it can't get any worse than that. It's got to get better. But the broken arm after all of the other stuff was the first one that really, really tested my resolve. And I remember just laying there thinking, what have I done? Is, is this what my life is going to be? Is this a life I want to continue down? A path, a career. And to be honest with you, I don't know how I, how I crossed that bridge. But I did. And did what I always did, just take it one day at a time. What helped you during that time? I don't know. I had good close friends. I had good family support. I had amazing support from my squadron and from the Air Force. But once I got through the initial shock, being broke again, I was able to fall back or lean back on my other injuries, my other setbacks, as an example of what resilience looks like so that I could keep moving forward and just keep looking forward to Maybe, I, maybe my right arm will never be 100% where it was, but I can get it as close as possible. So that became my mission every day. How, how much closer can I get to doing a push-up or a pull-up or being able just to, to squeeze a ball, you know, hold something with it? Just resetting my baseline of what I'm capable of or what I believe I'm capable of. Like when my face was paralyzed, I would look in the mirror and just stare at myself in the mirror every day. Just stare at it, just willing it to move, and of course it wouldn't. And if I had framed my success off of where I was prior with full movement, it would have made even the smallest improvement seem completely insignificant. But instead, what I did in resetting my baseline, I said, okay, this is where I am now. I can't move my face. So every single change when I first was able to wiggle my nose or my upper lip finally started moving or my right eye didn't sag anymore underneath, those were huge victories, huge victories. So instead of, instead of lamenting what I had lost, I was able to celebrate what I had gained. And I think that's so important for people to keep things in perspective. There's something about a facial injury that really affects you psychologically. Our identity is what we see in a mirror. So in my case, the right side of my face is mostly paralyzed. It's mostly just hanging there. 
and the left side is still normal. It was like looking at a different face on one side and the same face on the other. Very, very odd, very, uh, I, I can't even describe it. Then after it started to heal and I was able to move it again, there's still slight differences in the way it used to look. The tone of my face on the right side, the muscle tone increased a little bit where my lips a little higher. So it's not symmetrical anymore. It's not the same face I used to see in the mirror. And it's taken me a long, long time, many years to finally get back to the point where I say, okay, that's my face right there. But if I see myself in a picture or on a TV where now that image is flipped, it's still very, very obvious to me of what the difference is. But most people, when they meet me, don't even realize that I've ever had a, a facial injury. Yeah, I didn't see it unless until you yeah. pointed it out. Yeah. In 2010, uh, after coming back from the deployment in Balad, Iraq, I went and saw a maxillofacial surgeon in Bethesda, Bethesda, Maryland. And I ended up getting four facial surgeries. They did a complete scar revision, did some other work on my face, and it restored a lot of the tone and movement and generally my appearance. And that was a major psychological boost, you know? It was really wild. So mostly what I see in the mirror now is, is me. Yeah, it's a good position to be in. Good. We still haven't talked about what I think is probably the worst of my injuries. You may wonder, how can it possibly get worse than getting shot in the face? And then broken arm. Right. After the first jump. Yeah. In January of 2008, I was flying on helicopters in Exercise Red Flag out at Nellis Air Force Base. And... Our helicopter came into a hover. I fast roped out of the helicopter with my teammate, and then they flew around, came back out, tossed out the rope ladder for a 15-foot rope ladder, something I've done hundreds of times. For some reason this day, I climbed the rope ladder after my teammate. He got up in the helicopter, and because we were in a simulated combat environment, he immediately went over to his window and started scanning out the side. I was coming up the rope ladder, got to the top and was impeded by a piece of my equipment from getting into the helicopter. And I kept trying and trying to get in the bird and couldn't. And I started to realize that my hands were about to give out. To this day, I have no idea why. But that was just my day, I guess. I realized I was probably going to fall, and I thought, well, the best way for me to fall is probably from a lower altitude. So I tried stepping down the ladder. As soon as I took one of my hands off one of those rungs, the other hand peeled and I fell flat on my back, 15 feet. I was wearing body armor and a helmet, so I didn't get any kind of penetrating injury. I arched, I realized I was gonna fall, then I'm falling, and I arched really hard to try and be as flat as possible and to hit the ground flat. It's amazing that you were able to, to think through all of this and it's make amazing. good decisions. It's amazing how much time slows down, slows down when you're in something like that. Yeah. I arched and just braced myself for the impact. I hit the ground so hard, so hard, and I rolled over and just laid there for a second and pulled my knees up underneath myself, so now I'm on my hands and my knees, and the helicopter's still kind of blowing overhead a little bit, but a little off to the side now, and I'm just sitting there just feeling it structurally. Am I broke? Have I really hurt myself? And I determined that I wasn't, and I made sure to get to my feet and kind of started dusting myself off, and now two of my buddies are right in front of me. These are the two guys from the other helicopter. Well, the other helicopter was a couple hundred meters over, so I'm now I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, here's what really happened. 
I fell out of the helicopter. I impacted the ground, and I just laid there. It knocked me out. I was unaware of it. And I laid there for 45 seconds to a minute, enough time for my helicopter to move off, the other helicopter to land, and the two PJs to run the 200 meters over to where I was. And they showed up and they asked, Diz, are you okay? Now, I'm the team leader and the most senior guy on the team at this point that's on the ground there. I said, yeah, I'm fine. And I couldn't see the right side of Kyle's face. It was, like, blotchy. And, of course, I had a splitting headache. And and I said, no, I'm good. Let's just go ahead and get back on the bird and continue with the mission. And with (laughs) big, wide eyes, not believing what they had just seen, they went back to their bird. My favorite things about this story is that the first words out of my mouth when Kyle ran up to me and said, are you okay? I told him that would have killed you, Kyle. (laughs) So we went back and my teammates canceled the rest of the mission. They did the right thing. They told their pilots they weren't happy with what had just happened and didn't feel comfortable continuing. So I went back to the flight surgeon at Red Flag and told him that I was fine. He looked me over, waved his finger in front of my eyes a little bit. I followed him, and he said, okay, yeah, you're probably good. Mm. You knew that you weren't fine. I knew I wasn't right. Mm -hmm. I was a little disoriented, Mm -hmm. splitting headache, visual disturbances. Mm -hmm. But with everything else I'd already been through, this didn't seem like such a a big deal. Mm -hmm. I woke up the next day, and the sunlight was way too bright. The sounds of somebody working in the hallway were too loud. I noticed that I didn't smell things as strongly. Coffee didn't smell right. Food didn't taste right. When I would eat, chew and swallow, I would choke on the smallest bits of food. As a paramedic, I am trained to identify signs of cranial nerve damage, cranial nerve problems, and yet I still didn't see them in myself. And I didn't acknowledge them. I'd suffered a pretty, pretty serious traumatic brain injury. But up to that point, it was all physical stuff. The cranial nerve symptoms lasted maybe a couple of weeks. But this event happened about halfway through the exercise. So I continued to work the rest of that exercise and just kind of deal with the cranial nerve stuff, the eyes. I wore sunglasses and I made sure when I ate food, I cut it up into smaller pieces. Mm. Then we went home and went back to Georgia. We landed in Atlanta, and I realized I had left a critical piece of equipment in my suitcase. And my suitcase didn't show up in Atlanta when we landed. We went out and we got on a bus and headed back down to Georgia. I laid in that bus, horrified that I was an absolute dirtbag, that I was a complete failure. I'm expected to be this PJ whatever team leader, and I had just committed one of the most heinous, irresponsible acts that we could. I laid in the bus by myself in the back of it and bawled. Hysterical. Thankfully, nobody heard me. And to this day, I can't tell you why. All I can explain is that it was not me. It was me with a traumatic brain injury. I didn't even notice that I had become extremely emotional, up and down depressive and then manic. And I can look back now and realize that it was the result of the bruising and all the just chemical damage that happens and the diffuse axonal injury and all these terms we throw out there, but it was a result of all that. But feeling like a total failure and a total loser, irrationally, I went home, laid down in bed, 
Woke up around 2 a.m., walked into my spare bedroom, and tried to hang myself in a closet. I was 31 years old. I had experienced and overcome so much, and yet making one small mistake, one miscalculation, with my brain injured as it was, was enough to push me to a suicide attempt. And one of the things that actually made me stop was picturing somebody finding me. Interesting. What did you picture? I actually pictured my dog finding me. Mm -hmm. And I just laid there in that spare bedroom and just sobbed for hours. And to this day, I still can't tell you why. I went back to work the next day and pulled my flight commander, a young lieutenant, out into the hallway and started crying. Mm. Told him I need help. I, I, don't, I don't know what this is. And I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and says, we're going to get you help. And he didn't. My significant other at the time told me in the next few days, you're not right. Something's not right. I'm calling your first sergeant. And she didn't. And then after my team commander released me from work early one day because I was hyper-emotional, I went back to my house, laid in bed, and I put a bag over my face and tried to suffocate myself. And as I was about ready to pass out, I tore the bag off of my face and sat there and just breathed in clean air and again laid there and cried. And I accepted to myself at that moment that I wasn't right, that something wasn't right, and that I needed help. Now, I was a special operator, a gun handler and medicine handler and everything, and I believed that if I sought help, it would end my career. PJs at the time received four special duty pays, and fully three of them were dependent on staying operational. The moment I raised my hand and said, I've got a problem, they would take 10% of my pay. Do you know how unbelievable that is? To have that weighing over your head? So instead, the incentive to hide it was greater than the incentive to reveal it. I instead called Military One Source okay. and got six free sessions with them. Okay. It's actually 12 now, so I don't know, maybe it changed. Mm -hmm. yeah. And over the next three or four months, I suffered in truly in silence. And my significant other kept saying, you're not right. And I remember some of the specific phrases she used. Things like, you're not the person I married. Where did you go? There was one night I remember laying in bed and she rolled over on, on top of me and held my face with her hands. And with her eyes just a couple inches from mine, I felt a tear drop onto my face. And she said, where are you? Where have you gone? Where's my sweet husband? Are you coming back? Who are you? She described it like changing the channel on a TV. The TV's still on, 
but it's a different channel. You know, I've described it as, like imagine a bowl full of water, big bowl, and you smack it like a traumatic brain injury, and the water sloshes off to one side, and on that side is written the word happy, and it sloshes over happy. Then the other side, it's sad, and it sloshes over sad, and then it sloshes over angry, and, and anxious, and nervous, and all these different things. But then once the water finally settles, it's less than what was there before. I felt like less of who I'd been. There was less of me. I was less emotive, less emotional. I was less to get excited, less to get angry, just very flat all the time. No. But because I was having difficulties with things like short-term memory, it was also very, very frustrating. It was a very frustrating time for me. And the changes in me and in my interaction with her eventually ended that relationship of nine years. She left me for a younger, happier, healthier man. The highlight of my career was deploying as a group chief, as the superintendent of the first expeditionary rescue group in Iraq in 2015. I was 37 years old, and I was in charge of all combat search and rescue assets in the entire theater of Iraq and Syria. 200 airmen, 280, three separate locations, five aircraft. While I was on that trip, I shared with my flight doc what I called my dream log. Since 2012, I realized I was waking up every night from nightmares around one or two in the morning. And it got so bad and so frequent that I started writing them down when I woke up. I had a four-year history by that point of nightmares. And from the time that your wife was asking you, your ex-wife at the time was asking you, where have you gone? You've never sought help up until this moment. No, I'd never sought help at all. Up until sharing with your flight dog. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, when we get home, why don't we do a sleep study? I was hesitant. And I don't want this story to scare anybody away from seeking help. But when I got home from that deployment, I agreed to get a sleep study done. I only slept during that sleep study from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. I woke up from a nightmare and during that sleep study had a breathing pattern so unique that the study had to be read by the head of respiratory and sleep medicine for the University of Arizona Medical Center. And it was a career ender. It effectively ended my ability to continue to be any kind of operational PJ. I would never be allowed to fly again, jump again, dive again, do my job, the operational portion of my job. And I decided that, uh, I decided that it was time to retire. And I medically retired after 20 years, nine months, and four days. Our community has made amazing strides in correcting my reasons for not seeking help. I know that my pararescue squadron that I left, and in fact, most if not all of our pararescue squadrons, now have an embedded program, Preservation of the Force and Family, that has brought in clinical psychologists, licensed clinical social workers, strength and conditioning coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, chaplains, in our own squadrons. 
because the Air Force medical community recognizes and our leadership as a whole recognizes that there is a need to reduce obstacles to help-seeking behavior. So they have tried to throw everything they can at us, and at the time I left and got out, it was working. It was working. I don't ever want to see another Airman, Marine, Soldier, Sailor, Coast Guardy ever suffer in silence again. And I really feel that the way to do that is to ensure that the incentives are greater for getting help than for not and for avoiding it. And to be honest, I don't know what that's going to take or what that looks like. Yeah, I think there is a big push for some of those embedded teams, not just in your community, but I think all across the Air Force and the military in general. And it's definitely a good attempt to correct some of what you're describing, the stigma of seeking mental health, feeling like your career will be ending, Mm -hmm. certainly. I remember always feeling like, I've got this. Now, I'm being strong by not seeking help. I realize now that not seeking help when you need it is weak. If you break your arm and don't get it seen about, it's not going to heal right and it's not going to work right. And the same thing goes for the brain and for the mind. Nobody with a truly broken leg, at least I hope not, nobody with a broken leg would avoid going and getting it fixed. Maybe if you're David Goggins. Right. (laughs) But... Yet they avoid that same degree of care when it's a psychological injury. Because we still, I feel, as a society, have such a stigma against it. I was never a danger to anybody else. I continued being a jump master, putting people out of airplanes, being a team leader, taking them into combat, training them in firearms handling, and excelling at it. I achieved the highest enlisted rank in one of the most elite career fields in the DOD. And I did it in only 17 years. But I wonder how much more effective could I have been had I lived with a habit of help-seeking behavior? How much better could I have been? But you know what? I am 41 years old, retired E9, 100% disabled through the VA, and I am the happiest I have ever been. I can look back on an amazing career with amazing friends and amazing experiences and be completely satisfied in what I've accomplished. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. And when people are deep in the well and feel like, God, I'm at the bottom, Mm -hmm. I can honestly tell you there is no bottom. (laughs) It can always get worse, but it always gets better. Always gets better. Yeah. So that's my, I mean, there's more. There's more to the story, of course. Got one of my teeth knocked out on the parachuting jump, tore both of my biceps parachuting, bilateral hernia surgery. 2007 was a good year. 2008 was the traumatic brain injury. And then six months after that, I broke my right leg fast roping. Early 2009, I got diagnosed with hypothyroid and low testosterone, started getting medicated for both of those. It ended up knocking me off of a deployment, but I deployed the following year in 2010. Got the four rounds of facial surgery from Bethesda, and then the following year I deployed again to Iraq. 2012, I tore my right rotator cuff and was on physical therapy for eight months before they decided to give me an MRI, found that it was completely torn, 100% tear of my right rotator cuff. 
and finally got surgery for that in 2012, November, after nine months following the injury, which still doesn't work right. 2013 was a relatively good year. 2014, I made chief, but I ended up tearing both of my calf muscles doing box jumps. What? 2015, I ended up getting the sleep study. I got permanently disqualified. Then in 16, got umbilical hernia surgery and a triple nerve ablation in my lower back, along with the PTSD diagnosis and the other diagnosis from the sleep study. And a partridge in a pear tree. I don't know how you went through all these medical complications, medical surgeries, and still were able to deploy. I mean, just listening to your story and then hearing you say, I'm the happiest I've ever been, or I'm, I'm satisfied with my life, it's pretty amazing. You just got to find your, it, it may be cliche, but you've got to find your why. Yeah. The how is always going to be there. The how is you work out harder, or you diet a little bit more, or you seek out help, seek out the help of a psychologist or a doctor, or you call a friend, or you go through physical therapy. That's the how. The how's easy. But you have to find the why for you. What's your why? I, I think I still have no idea. My why is because I love being able to show people what you were capable of doing when you put your mind to it that there are no limits to what you can accomplish with the right mindset, with the right amount of motivation, drive, and education. There's nothing you can't overcome. Thank you so much for this interview. This was retired Chief Robert Disney. He's a PJ Purple Heart recipient. Thank you so much for this interview. It was such a pleasure. Of course. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mail.mail.mail. It's anna.v dot f-e-d-o-t-o-v-a dot mil at mail.com